This is a long passage this morning, so I advise you to have a seat as we read through it. This morning we're in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall, not, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. And everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him, give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning pleading for the bread of life to satisfy our emptiness in our own life. Father, help us to set aside distractions this morning as we focus on this text. May we be encouraged and be filled in Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. How do others define you? Is it by what you wear or how you speak or how you look? What is your identity? What distinguishes you from others? One of my favorite movies, uh, Catch Me If You Can, brings to the forefront the discussion of this idea of identity. In the movie, Frank seeks to create his own identity. It's a false identity, but he seeks to create his own. The movie is about a con man named Frank, who by the age of 16 impersonates a Pan Am airline pilot, a Georgia doctor, so please no Georgia jokes, an attorney in New Orleans, which he did technically pass the bar exam, 
as well as he was caught forging numerous checks. And one of my favorite parts of the movie is this episode between his, his parents and the principal when he comes into the office and his parents find out that he was caught doing all of this. The discussion goes like this. The principal sits, his parents sit down and they say, you know, you know I, I call you in here not to question your son's attendance, uh, but I regret, regret to inform you that your son, for the past few weeks, uh, has been teaching one of the French classes. And the mom was shocked. She said, he was what? And the principal responds, yes, your son has been pretending to be a substitute teacher. He's lecturing the students. He's giving out homework. The, the original teacher was ill at that time, and so there was some confusion over who the real sub would be, so I, I take it your son stepped in and taught. And she said, your son, he even held a parent-teacher conference yesterday. And he was planning a class field trip to a French bakery to the nearby town. So this, he was, he was quite, impre- quite impressive, right? Here, a teenager, 16 years old, was able to impersonate a teacher. He had everyone believing his lies. When asked why he did this years later, he responded by saying that, I was an opportunist. So when I saw an opening, I asked myself, can I get away with that? And then finally, when there was a satisfaction of actually getting away with it, the more I got away with it, the more, the more of a game it became. And the more of the game that I enjoyed to play. You see, he knew that eventually he would lose the game. But he found great pleasure in creating are impersonating these different positions and creating these false identities because he saw the opportunity and he took advantage of it. And it's interesting because we see this parallel sometimes when we think of, of or we, we kind of look out there in the world and we hear some of the, the takes on who Jesus is and the role that, that he plays. So today... You know, it always seems around the time of Christmas. You know, the History Channel, Discovery Channel, they always have this who is Jesus type episodes where everyone's questioning or who, was he the savior, was he a good man and stuff like this. So even today, some actually do believe that Jesus was an opportunist. That he was just a figure who took advantage of the turmoil in the Middle East and had this cult-like following, which I th- I think it's crazy that they actually believe that. And he did this for his personal gain. But in the gospel this morning, as we see in John, the gospel according to John, we see that, that, there's, there's, that the, the, the Galileans have this misconception of who Jesus is as well and what his mission is. We see this played out in the beginning verses of chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, when, when Jesus just got through feeding this crowd of 5,000. You know, what did they decide to do? They wanted to make him a political leader. They wanted to make him a, a, a king. Look at what it says here. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew, withdrew again to the mountains by himself. They had a false understanding of, of Jesus, of, of what he was teaching, of what he was doing. And so they took that false misunderstanding and, 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 and put it on Christ and attempted to make him king. That he was going to come in and to wipe out the Roman rule. Or to free them from the bondage of Roman rule. So the Galileans lack this understanding of who Jesus is. And this morning, what we could do when we look at this, this text, we could look at the context and we will see how it, it fleshes out how Jesus reveals who he really is. Not only to the Galileans, but to us as well. And after Jesus walks on water and the people meet him on the other side, the question that they ask him is not, tell us who you are. The question is, feed us again. Where did you go? But notice that Jesus didn't respond. Because he knew that they were, their emptiness was driving them for something more than food. Even though they asked for food. But this pattern is not just in today's, that we see in this passage. But we, we look at, at other issues today of, of people trying to define who Jesus is. There's a lot of other misconceptions. In seminary, we had to listen to a, a class. We took a class of biblical theology, and it's all about critical understanding, critical uh, uh, examining the, the Bible from a critical, critical perspective. And one of the groups that we discussed was this idea that came out of this, these group of scholars who referred to themselves as uh, the Jesus Seminar. Some of you might be aware of some of the teachings. But what this seminar decided to do is they kind of took the idea of the Galileans as well as the Frank's opportunist Jesus that we talked about just a minute ago, and they examined all of scripture and they created a system to determine what, who Jesus really was. All the, all the things that Jesus said in scripture, was it true? Did Jesus really say it? Uh, is it partial, partially true or is it completely false? And so they created this system of beads to determine uh, if, if what was said in scripture was correct, if Jesus actually really said it. And so, for instance, the red bead, they created this red bead. And this red bead um, was, uh, would identify that that is, Jesus said it, 100%. It was the word, the word from Jesus. They developed the pink bead. And the pink bead was, you know, Jesus maybe, sound like Jesus said it, but we're not quite sure. We'll just give it a pink bead. The gray bead was the next in the system, and it was maybe Jesus said it. Uh, Jesus is, is not good enough yet. It's not red for Jesus to say it. it. It doesn't sound like Jesus, so we'll give it the gray. Maybe Jesus said it. You know, these people are paid to do this. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? And then finally, there's the black bead, and the black bead is Jesus didn't say it at all. It, it's, it's not a word from Jesus. And so the whole purpose of this group, according to the main scholar, was to do this. He said this. The, the purpose of this seminar was so that we could meet and give Jesus a demotion. It is, it is no longer credible to think of Jesus divine. 
Jesus' divinity goes together with the atheistic way of thinking of God. The plot of early Christians invented for a divine redeemed figure is archaic as the methodology in which it is framed. A Jesus who drops down out of heaven performs some magical act that frees human beings from the power of sin, rises from the dead, and returns to heaven is simply no longer credible. The notion that he will return at the end of time and sit in cosmic judgment is equally incredible. We must find a new plot for a more credible Jesus. Interesting. So what this author is saying, if we take everything that he is saying, is that everything that Jesus and how Jesus reveals himself in the Gospels, how he reveals himself in and all throughout the the epistles and the rest of the writing of scripture uh the the scripture that we the jesus that we see is uh, is is not true it's false and if we were to take this method and we were to apply it to john 6 the passage that we're reading today do you know what color b they would give it a black Jesus really is not claiming to be the bread of life. So taking all of this into account, long intro, but it's important because it sets up what we're dealing with here this morning. Because when we come to the first of the seven I am statements, we see that Jesus is revealing who he really is. We see the first point, so if you take a note, the first point is this. We see the identity of Jesus Christ as the bread of life. In verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life, who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he's revealing who he is in that one verse, his identity. And the second point is this. We see from verse 36 On down through verse 51, we see Jesus reveal his mission. What did he come to do? So as we look at these two points, we will see why this passage is significant for us today. Because it addresses a culture that continues to ask the question or continues to seek to identify who Jesus is and what role he plays. So for time purposes, we're not going to get to the second point because Jesus' mission, oh, there's a lot of meat there. And I cannot do us justice this morning, along with the Lord's Supper. So what we're going to focus on this morning is we're going to do with the identity of Jesus. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 35, beginning with Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. So there with me? All right. I am the bread of life. So John starts off, or Jesus starts off, if we're using Jesus' terms here. This short expression goes a long way in showing for us, or dealing, for, telling us, or who Jesus Christ really is. One, it shows his divinity, his oneness with the Father. So if you're doing sub-points to that one point, you can see that we're, we're talking about his oneness with the Father. He's divine. Jesus is divine. And second, the sub point is this. He is sufficient for us as well. 
And they go hand in hand together. We'll discuss that in just a minute. So the first sub-point, his divinity. He starts off and he uses this phrase, I am. Now, if you're a Greek scholar, you know that this is the first of the ego, I, me. His I am statements. This is, this is big. Because what he's doing here is he is tying us, as well as the Galileans, back to the Exodus passage where God reveals himself to his people in the burning bush, or to Moses in the burning bush. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to him, The God of your fathers has sent me, and, you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, "This Say this to the people of Israel, For I am has sent me to you. So by referring to himself as I am, Jesus is affirming that all of the qualities that the Father possesses are his as well. We see this, he supports this by other comments that he makes throughout the passage. When he says, I come down from heaven in verse 38. As well as having the power to raise one to to eternal life in verses 40 and 43. Both are terms which belong to the Father are contributed to the Son here as well. We see this. The shorter, the larger catechism lays this out in question 11 when it says this. How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Spirit are, are God are equal with God? And it says the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God are equal with God, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, because that's important, works and worship as are proper to God only. So what Jesus is doing here is saying, I am the bread of life. He's going back and he's using the Exodus how, how, when God reveals himself to Moses. And he's saying, look, all the attributes that we see in the Old Testament, how God reveals himself, the character of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, all of those attributes, I possess them as well because I am, I am. I am God. And this is essential because if, if we have to come to grips with that because it shapes our next subpoint. If the Son and the Father are one, then just as the Father is sufficient to provide for his elect, the Son is as well. Look at what he says here in verse 35. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to the I am shall not hunger, and whoever believes in the I am shall never thirst. And me shall never thirst. Now we know that Jesus is not saying in this passage that we will never hunger, nor will we never thirst. This is what the Galileans thought, remember, because they came to Jesus and they're saying, give us this bread that you're speaking of. They misunderstood Jesus's. Uh, discussion with him in the previous verses. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that when we come to Jesus, that Jesus will feed our tummies and quench our thirst. That's not what he's saying, that we would never thirst again, that we would never hunger and thirst again. 
But what he is saying is that since Jesus is the bread of life, he is sufficient to fulfill the emptiness of all of those who come to him and believe. He is sufficient to fulfill the emptiness of all of those who come to him and believe. This is very similar to the Isaiah 55 passage, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Where Isaiah writes, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine, drink and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that for which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I may make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So what Isaiah is saying and what Isaiah is saying in chapter 55 matches with what Jesus is saying here in John 6. Is come, come and be filled and be satisfied in Christ and what he offers. For it will quench your thirst and it will cause you to hunger no more. That is what he's saying. Come to Jesus with nothing to receive and be filled with everything which is salvation. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller tells this story that I think helps illustrate this point. Keller and his wife knew of a single mother who desperately wanted kids. Eventually she was married and against the advice of the doctor, she was able to give birth to two healthy boys. And so it's, it's a blessing, right? She be rejoicing. But as her kids continued to grow, she invested so much into the life of the kids that it became that her family became miserable. She saw the gift of the boys. as a way of of projecting onto them a sense of a perfect life. She wanted them to have a perfect life. Keller said she became overprotective. She became fearful and anxious of the boys, that something would happen to them. She became controlling. She controlled every aspect of their life. In their response to this overbearing mother... Her oldest son did poorly in school and began to show signs of serious emotional problems. The younger child was filled with anger and contempt towards those around him. Keller then ends the statement by saying this. He says, there's a good chance that her drive to give her children wonderful lives will actually be the thing that ruins them. Now, why would a mother who desperately wanted children, who fought to give them a perfect life, create an environment that could possibly ruin their lives? 
because she was so determined to fill the emptiness of her life with having perfect kids. She was driven to have perfect kids, to fill the emptiness of her life with those perfect kids that she completely forgot her Savior. Instead of filling her life with a perfect Savior, she attempted to fill her life with perfect kids. Maybe some of you this morning is like the Galileans in this passage. And that you're trying to fill the emptiness in your life with food and drink that does not satisfy. Perhaps you're filling it with power, with wealth, a good reputation, or maybe security. And in doing that, maybe you are bitter. Some here this morning could be trying to fear their lives, maybe with a false understanding of who Jesus is. We just got through spending time opening Christmas gifts, right? Maybe we see Jesus sometimes as Santa Claus. If I'm good enough, he'll give me something in return. So maybe you're trying to fill your life with a false understanding of who Jesus is. Perhaps he has always been for you a good moral teacher, an old sage, or prophet, or a good man. Or maybe you've even seen him as an opportunist. For those of you this morning who has come to Christ and professed faith, and yet you struggle with being satisfied in Christ, let these verses, let these these verses, these two verses this morning, be an encouragement to you and help you to be conscious of those moments when you hunger and thirst for something else other than Christ. Because the Father desires good things for you in Christ. For those that are here this morning that are tired and weary from seeking new things in this world, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're trying to fill the void or the emptiness with the things that the world is offering besides Christ. I encourage you this morning to stop and to seek out the Christ revealed in Scripture. For the Christ that we see revealed to us is the only one that can satisfy all your desires and all of your needs. The power will come and go. The wealth will come and go. Your securities will come and go. Your status will come and go. Your popularity, reputation, whatever, all of that will come and go. But Christ will give you complete satisfaction. Come to him. I end with this, the last stanza, the second stanza of how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. It says this, At the name of Jesus, it makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breath. It's manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest.
I invite you to come back next week as we continue to unpack the rest of this passage. Now that we have discovered Christ's identity, he is the I am. As well as how he feels the emptiness in our life. Next Sunday we'll discuss the steps that he goes about in making us his. And fulfilling the the mission that he's called to fulfill. And predestining us and electing us and calling us his own. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would remind us, Lord, that you are all that satisfies. Father, for we are people who strive to fill our emptiness with things that can never satisfy. Lord, pray that we would keep coming back to you, knowing that you are the only thing that can fill our emptiness. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.